0: This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by eHarmony, The Great Courses Plus, Zip Recruiter, Blue Apron, and our contributors at patreon.com.
1: There are listeners of Astonishing Legends that prefer only a segment of the topics we cover, avoiding ideas that they don't think will interest them. Others, in spite of that disinterest, will still listen to a show on something that at first blush, they think they might not enjoy, just to see if it will surprise them. We hear from those folks frequently. They'll send an email or post a comment on Facebook or Twitter saying, I honestly didn't think I would care about shadow people or the Nazi bell, but that show was compelling and now I can't stop thinking about it. Tonight's show is one of those topics. Just before the holidays, the venerated New York Times, founded in 1853 and winner of 122 Pulitzer Prizes, did something that no other newspaper of their caliber has ever done before they published a front page story that was up until the moment it went out about a topic that has been consistently labeled as speculative or fabricated ufos a story that will have you reconsider that something scott and i already know everything is connected
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest
1: Burgess. I'm not embarrassed or ashamed or sorry I got this thing going. I think it's one of the good things I did in my congressional service. I've done something that no one has done before. Former
2: Congressman Harry Reid, who the day before the time story broke, tweeted, the truth is out there. Join us tonight for the first part of our series on some startling recent news that you may have missed at the end of 2017. And we're back. Yes. Well,
1: I wanted to give a rousing good welcome back here, and we're back, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, it's weird. I kind of missed it. I missed
2: being in here in this blanket fort, actually. I did conceptually. Yeah. And then <laughs> when I got
1: here, is maybe not as much. But yeah, <laughs> I miss hanging out with you and, and talking about fun stuff. Oh, well, is, that's you know, true. Yeah.
2: I, I miss that as well. That's what this
1: show is about.
2: Well, folks may remember me tweeting or actually Instagramming and Facebooking some images of a hard copy of the New York Times just before the holidays. I actually went right out and bought five copies of it because it was such a crazy story. I was afraid it would disappear off the internet. And I'm still so freaked out that one of those copies of that paper is actually being stored offsite in a secure location. (laughs) But seriously, this story, it it connects so many dots in the history of our show that you could make a sweater out of it. (laughs) Yeah,
1: because you may not uh, realize it, but there are so many things that we've talked about in different episodes, you know, under this umbrella genre here, weirdly connected. Yeah, I'll say that. But first, yes, it was really hard getting back in the swing of things.
2: Yeah, it's true. It's We never take more than a few weeks off, and it's so strange at the end of the year when we do, because like, I'm so used to doing the show that when I'm not doing it... Rather than feeling relaxed, I just feel like I left something on the stove.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. You know, I was feeling antsy myself because then it felt like I was procrastinating about procrastinating. <laughs> <laughs> and I still had to work on the web pages while visiting the folks, which proved challenging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was well, interesting.
2: Anyway, it, it was great seeing family. And we hope all you guys got a chance to visit with your families too, unless you don't like your family, in which case we hope it was <laughs> suitably short yeah. and you had an escape plan in place. As we go into 2018, we just wanted to take a moment to remind everyone
1: that the reason our show is free is because of our sponsors. So please remember to support them when you can because the sponsors and the support of our patrons at patreon.com or what keep the lights on around here. That was pretty good. Was nice little <laughs> uh, Tom Baudet. Yeah. yeah. It was about a, it was about you need a, to work on that one. A, I no, I I'd only turned up the Baudet dial about a, a quarter, so, yeah.
2: We're actually looking very much forward to this year. Tonight's episode is our 94th one since we started, and time has flown by. We've learned so much, and we continue to learn new things with every episode. We're very excited about how that's going to allow us to evolve the show for you guys as we go further down the rabbit hole than ever before.
1: We'll be on the road at least twice this year, so there will be opportunities to meet up with us on both of those occasions and possibly others if everything
2: works out. But either way, we'll keep you posted. Tonight, we have a very special guest from our own inner circle on the show. He's one of the earliest members of the Astonishing Research Corps and our resident expert on unidentified aerial phenomena, Rob Christofferson. And no, he's not related to one of my favorite singers, so don't ask. Oh, yeah. He's sensitive about that
1: question. Well, I I understand exactly how he feels, as we'll talk about later.
2: Uh, Anyone who listens to us knows that our show is all over the place. We talk about ghosts, cryptids, possessions, UFOs, aliens, the Wild West, pretty much whatever we have a personal fascination with. That's an exciting place to be, but it also puts us in the realm of being a jack of all trades and master of none. There's an elegance to the ability to focus on one topic of interest when it comes to the world of the unexplained. And Rob Christofferson embodies that with his interest and knowledge of unidentified aerial phenomena or UFOs. The stories of abductees and contactees, and yes, there's a difference which he can readily explain, and the collective knowledge that encompasses all of that and pretty much anything associated with it. There's no prominent unexplained encounter that he's not extremely familiar with, and even some of the ones you've never heard of. He's much more than that, and he would have to be or he wouldn't be in the Astonishing Research Corps. He has a critical mind, and while none of us could ever fully suppress confirmation bias, the simple awareness that it exists within you helps you be a more balanced investigator. That's what makes Astonishing Legends work for both Forrest and I, and it's also why we admire Rob's research and perspective on these types of cases. To that end, Rob has just launched his own podcast on the subject at hand, entitled Our Strange Skies. You can follow him on Twitter under that handle as well. The pilot episode just dropped. There was a little trailer, a short trailer, and then the pilot episode came right after that. And I got to tell you, that episode unfolds like a map from Lord of the Rings. It just details (laughs) all the amazing places he's going to take you on his show. It begins, rightfully so, with a look at the father of unidentified aerial phenomena categorization, J. Allen Hynek, whom we've mentioned frequently on our own show, including in our episodes on the Delphos Ring and the Keksberg incident. And Forrest, I'll tell you what, I thought you needed a notebook to listen to us, but I'm going back to his Mm -hmm. first show myself to take copious notes on the framework he lays out in it because I made the mistake of listening to it on an elliptical machine and let's just say making notes on an elliptical machine, well, it doesn't work.
1: <laughs> oh, really? Honestly? Because with your handwriting, I'm not sure I could tell the difference. Oh, yeah. point taken. Well, you should have been a doctor. Oh, okay, yeah. I get it. With the you know, unreadable handwriting. Yeah, I get, it. I get it. Oh, Thank okay. you. Okay,
2: good. Before we even begin to dive into the crux of the show tonight, we wanted to patch Robin in the conversation here from his studio back east.
3: Rob, Are you there? I am here, sir.
2: All right. Well, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it, man. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I've already mentioned this, but we're very excited about your show, Our Strange Skies. I listened to uh, your first full episode, and it really was a job well done, I yeah. gotta say. Show
1: zero and everything leading up to a full one.
2: <laughs> yeah. show, show one, <laughs> yeah. Because there's a, there's a <laughs> 0.5, right? Yeah. 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 And a trailer. So yeah, very well done, sir. Yeah, well, it's been a long time coming. You've been talking about it for a while, which is the same thing we did. We talked about Astonishing Legends for almost a year and a half before we launched it. We spent a whole year just trying to come up with a name. Yeah, and then <laughs> <laughs> so we're still doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to have stuck at this point. Um but I wanted to tell our audience that Rob's show is completely independent of ours, even though he is one of our earliest members of the Astonishing Research Corps. That's his own independent project.
1: Yeah, he's part of the inner circle.
2: Yes, exactly. And uh he is not paying us to mention it and we're not getting paid. Are we? You're not paying us, right? <laughs> no, For I to, I don't think so. Okay. Um
1: <laughs> where should I make the check to?
2: <laughs> Him agreeing
1: to be on Skype uh, save us some long-distance money. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So
2: let's talk about this article. To me, when it came out, it was like that record scratch moment in a John Hughes movie. I was just like, (laughs) what? December 17th, 2017, the New York Times ran a front-page story with the headline, Are UFOs Real? Pentagon Unit Tried to Know. And that was on the front page. It was just below the fold, but I will say at the top of below the fold.
1: Yeah, As there, they say, I think in the newspaper biz, not a full
2: splash on A1, no. but it was on the front page. Yeah, it was on the front page. It didn't have a ton of real estate, but if you continued onto page A22, an entire page of the paper was dedicated to that article and an accompanying article that was connected to it. And that one was entitled... Two airmen and an object that accelerated like nothing I've ever seen, in quotes.
3: (laughs) Rob, what was your first reaction when you found out about this piece? I got a tweet storm, like, just as soon as it was posted from a bunch of people, and there were expletives thrown around because <laughs> I was at work, and uh, I was celebrating and making a fool of myself, but it was great. I couldn't believe it
2: either, and we're going to talk a lot about why, because it, there's a lot of the, in this article that connects to prior episodes of our own show in surprising ways. I think people are going to be shocked to hear about it if they hadn't read the article. For you, though, why was it a celebration?
3: Because this is the first essentially government-funded research effort into studying UFOs since Project Blue Book ended in 1969. But just from the tone of the article, it felt like they were taking it seriously. And with the way that Project Blue Book ended, with the Condon Committee's basic suggestion of having it shut down because they weren't going to find anything scientific, it felt kind of like validation for people who have been doing research for years and years and years and finding that the government was taking it seriously for a little while, you know, even for five years. It was amazing.
2: Yeah. And that's amazing to me too. And part of the thing that I wanted to convey, uh, newspapers have been going through some rough times lately with the evolution of the internet. And of course, everyone said print was dead like 15 years ago, but it it is still hanging in there. Some magazines- There's still words. Yeah, Yeah, there's still words and there's still 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 paper. Some magazines are shadows of their former selves, but the New York Times, it's venerated. It was founded in 1853. It has over 122 Pulitzer Prizes. And as we mentioned earlier, so it's pretty amazing to have the story be a front page story there as opposed to on the, crap, what's the name of it? Weekly World News. Thank you. As opposed to on the cover of the Weekly World News. Well, it could be our, the National Enquirer. I think
1: Weekly World News took the mantle
2: away from them at some point. Like, wow, we're not even going to touch that. Yeah. We're the Enquirer. Yeah. Yeah. Bat boy, that kind of thing. So it's very fascinating that it made it to the front page. The other thing that I thought was interesting, I want to talk a little bit about the paper and its reputation. Like the current executive editor, Dean Baquet, B-A-Q-U-E-T, is a Pulitzer recipient himself, having broken a corruption story about the Chicago City Council for the Chicago Tribune back in the late 80s. And he's also known for refusing to cut staff at the newspapers he's managed in spite of corporate pressure to save money by getting rid of journalists. So he's a diehard, official, old-school journalist who believes that there's better ways to save money in an organization than getting rid of the reporters, which is what these corporate behemoths that control newspapers now want to do. And his quote from a Vanity Fair piece, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, that was written by Joe Pompeo. This came out five days after the New York Times cover story. Dean Baquet said, It was a story about government and fights over funding and priorities, and it was damn interesting, end quote. I thought that was a fascinating take. The other thing that we'll talk about later is his personal position after the development of the article. And the article has three bylines, Helene Cooper... Ralph Blumenthal, who's a longtime journalist at the paper. and a yeah, contributing journalist right. to the paper. And he knew Leslie Keene. Yes. And Leslie is somebody we brought up before. And I'm sure that, Rob, you're a little bit familiar with her because we mentioned her ourselves with regard to the Kecksburg incident. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you know about Leslie?
3: Leslie, she's been a scientific journalist for a long time now. And she kind of gets a little pigeonholed as a UFO researcher, but she's kind Kind of varied in what she does it's not just ufos but th- there are esoteric topics that she covers but most famously she came out with a book in 2010 entitled UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. And it was a pretty interesting book of just interviews with all these officials that had had UFO encounters uh, over the years. So yeah, she made a big name for herself with the uh, Kexburg incident, so to speak, because basically she sued NASA to try to get files relating to that crash. So uh, she's well-known within the UFO circle. Right. That was a Freedom of Information Act request,
2: right, that she was making with relation to that case. Correct. Yeah. And I actually am wanting to get in touch with her. I follow her on Twitter. I'd be very interested in talking to her. Although in the article by Joe Pompeo in Vanity Fair, she said she has been, quote, flooded with new tips, legitimate and otherwise. And she said she expects to pursue follow-ups with additional revelations. And uh, Pompeo asked her if the new revelations had an impact on her own beliefs. She said, quote, I don't think this is a matter of belief. We still don't know a lot about the unknown vehicles, but we do know that they exist and they are physical, end quote. So I thought that was pretty interesting. She, I guess, was the one who got the tip from Luis Elizondo that unfolded this entire story. And that's how it got over to the Times, because she was connected to Blumenthal. So... What I wanted to do, if this is okay with you guys, Forrest and Rob, is kind of just go through the article and talk about it in a linear fashion, because there's things in here that stand out to me, and there's revelations along the way that connect to um, our own show and prior episodes, like I said, in a way that I think is going to surprise our listeners. Rob, you can stop me anytime if you want to make any points. Mm -hmm. The first thing I wanted to mention was that what this article does is it identifies a secret division at the Defense Department that was charged with dealing with encounters that military personnel had with unexplained aerial phenomena, I would say. that Would be a good description? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. The title being Advanced Aerospace Threat
1: Identification Program.
2: Yes, acronym Ah, <laughs> uh, tip yeah, well, yeah, exactly. But
1: the idea is not that crazy because if you think about it as things hurtling at us from outer space that might harm us. Well, NASA and JPL already do that. They track extraterrestrial bodies coming at us could be a threat. So it's, it's, yeah, that's more geology, you know, space, rocks and whatnot, meteors coming at us we should know about. But this is also just anything in the skies that could be a threat. So it doesn't necessarily mean UFOs, and I don't think they want people to immediately jump to
2: that, right. but it's under that purview. So, yeah, and this program was getting 22 million a year. Yeah. And it's, that's a significant amount of money. It's significant. It's not huge. I mean, no. that is
1: a $600 billion annual defense department budget. Yeah. It's a tiny percentage. Right. But I always refer to the great line, and, uh, <laughs> Independence Day, where I think Judd Hirsch says, like, well, what do you think? A toilet seat costs $600? Yeah. And that did come out. Is that, yeah, why does a toilet seat cost $600? Why is a hammer $400? Because what's charged, the overcharge in that, the remainder goes to something else. Yeah. And that's how you're able to do it. You can't come out and say, like, oh, UFO detector. That's $1,200. You kind of, like, shift these <laughs> things around, so the general term for that. but and you, you conceal what yeah. you're actually purchasing. Exactly. So as Harry Reid calls it, it's black money. Where it's, yeah, there's money there. Obviously, it's real. Somebody's got to get paid. But you don't exactly know where it's
2: going, and it's not clearly labeled. So I I don't know head. if this is apocryphal. I think I've mentioned it before. But I, I feel like at the Skunk Works, when they rolled out the sr 71 away from the platforms they were building it on, they had to go to the hardware store and buy a ladder to get in it. <laughs> Because <laughs> like it, hey, it had such a weird got. shape. Yeah. They were like, well, not, no, nothing that we have is going to work for this. Right. Yeah. Well, you, you get it wherever you can,
1: or you have it made. So there's all kinds of subcontractors, defense department subcontractors that have to be paid, materials have to be bought, <laughs> and things have to be studied. So that all costs money. And of course, salaries have to be paid. So it's got to come from somewhere. And in this case, what was significant to the times was that the US taxpayers are paying for this. And I found that to be interesting because that's the editorial view that they have to take. And I understand that it might be personal viewpoints as well, but they can't come out and say, the New York Times is really now into UFOs. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Kristen Albert. Now back to the show.
2: This plays right into your favorite thing about when a company or an organization or the government acknowledges something unusual, and not only that, they do it By spending money or changing policy. Right, right. Yeah.
1: And doesn't necessarily mean that they're all on board believing it, but that it warrants further investigation. And that's all they're saying here. So, you know, the Times, their attitude is well, it's about government budgets and arguing and and taxpayer dollars. That's the angle that we're coming at it from. But it's also dealing with UFOs. Well, it has to deal with the study of UFOs. So that's in there too. I think as a journalistic bent, they have to take that because there's still so much stigma about the subject. And Leslie Keen says it as well, is that, you know, she'll tell people, well, I'm a journalist, but I hope they don't ask me
2: what (laughs) field I (laughs) focus on, because
1: then they'll laugh.
2: Yeah. And I'm sure this is something you're quite familiar with, Rob, but why people do and don't report things or are afraid to uh, officially study something.
3: Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, you have military officials, especially pilots and such, that if they come out and say, hey, I saw this thing in the sky, well... You could be clearly hallucinating. We can't. You can't fly a plane ever again. So the blowback is just crazy. And and part of it too is that when we talk about UFOs, the definition really of a UFO is is a lot more complicated than I think a lot of people make it out to be. And there's a lot of moving parts in the actual
2: definition. So not to put you on the spot with a complex definition, but in what ways do you think that that manifests?
3: Well, you have essentially three parts. So you have an object in the sky and it's doing unusual things that you've never seen before and that n- don't seem to abide by any known laws or any known craft that we have. So you have that, you have the person that reports it, and then you have the people that study this and try to come to a definitive conclusion of, well, no, this is a misidentification or this is unexplainable and therefore unidentified. So that's really what it comes down to, is those three moving parts and essentially making this definition work. What's interesting about this department,
2: the Tip Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, is that the Defense Department had not acknowledged that it existed. This is according to the Times piece. And it says that it was shut down in 2012. And in the ensuing articles, even in Vanity Fair and other things that I've read, everyone seems to say, oh, it was shut down in 2012. But the very next sentence in the Times piece says, but its backers say that while the Pentagon ended funding for the effort at that time, the program remains in existence. So right here in the Times piece, it's saying it's not shut down. It's still there. It's not officially getting... Direct government funding
1: is right. what they're saying, but it is still the work still goes on, right? So, who's paying for it? Well, it's yeah, a, exactly. Know, well, it's kind of like <laughs> kind of like all of us who who've worked at a place and like, you know what, I, I got a 15 minute coffee break here, I'm gonna go over and work on this. Yeah, not saying that's happening there, but what's happening is that
2: according to Luis Elizondo, the, yeah, and this is the guy that ran the program, which is, I guess, the fox Mulder here in this, in yeah, a little bit, yeah, C ring office, right? At, at well, the Pentagon. A, yeah, exactly. He is an intelligence officer, an official, yeah. Or was, he resigned. He did
1: resign back in October of last year, protesting the extraordinary secrecy, he thought too much, and the cover-up and the internal pushback he was getting. Right. So he was protesting that, but he had an office in the C-ring, fifth floor of the Pentagon, so it's a real place, and he was, according to him, was getting contacted by CIA officers and Navy personnel about certain cases that they could not ignore. So it's a real thing. But it, all this kind of reminds me a little, it sounds a lot like, to me, Project Stargate, which was formed to study remote viewing. And there's a little crossover there. Harold E. Putoff, the engineer who was on that project as well, has some connection to this story we'll get into a little bit later. But it sounded like the same thing. We are setting up, we're funding this, I believe over 20 years, $10 million was put into researching Project Stargate very roughly and it was a known thing. And a while then, back. A, a while so back. So
2: that was a lot of money at the time.
1: Yeah, exactly. And over a long span, and it was seriously researched, and the same thing. It was like, well, you know what, it has some application, but... We can't really get a handle on this, and uh, we're not assassinating people with our thoughts yet, as far as you know. So that's, you know, and that's where they kind of leave it. It's like, well, yeah, it uh, had some promising things, but we kind of leave it. What you find out later is that, yeah, there's other groups that take up the torch and continue on with the research. And of course, it does today. We've talked about that.
2: So this program, which is partially classified to this day, according to the Times piece, was, this is one of my next favorite things, largely funded at the request, quoting the article of Harry Reid, the Nevada Democrat who was the Senate majority leader at the time and who had a long interest in space phenomena. Here's the next piece of this. <laughs> this is my favorite part yeah. of the entire article. People who have listened to all of our shows, now I know there's some of you that skip some of them, and uh, we talked about that a little bit in the opening of this one, ah. but mm-hmm. uh, I'm hoping <laughs> that you're hanging in there, and I'm hoping that you've heard the one that I mention in nearly every episode for this next sentence. Most of the money that's the $22 went to an aerospace research company run by a billionaire entrepreneur and longtime friend of Mr. Reed's, Robert Bigelow. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) For those of you that don't remember Mr. Bigelow, he is the owner, possibly current, maybe former, I'm not sure at this point. Yeah, that's a little murky. It's a little murky, of Skinwalker Ranch. So this whole thing, this front page story which is dealing with outing the idea that the government is studying UFO encounters with military officers and officials and enlisted whoever is connected to Robert Bigelow and Skinwalker Ranch, again, further solidifying the idea that whatever happened or is happening at that ranch is a phenomena worth investigating by the United States government.
1: Right. And is the trend and has been, I think, for the last uh, 50 years or 60 years since World War II, is that you start to see a trend towards the military going to subcontractors. Because yes. Because you can't have a, a division of the Army or the Navy. It becomes kind of a administrative mess. So just go to somebody who's already doing it. Yeah. And he's already set it up and we just pay him a certain amount or direct some funds to him. And he continues doing what he's doing. But look at all the aerospace, you know, Lockheed is not a division of the military. It's a private company that is a subcontractor that builds the planes under, you know, tight security and all the necessary secrecy. But it's much easier to just go to somebody who's already doing it. And that's what Robert Bigelow was doing, pumping a lot of his own money, you know, from his budget stay hotel empire
2: into researching it, because that's what he wanted to do with it. Yeah, to recap here, for those of you who haven't heard Skinwalker Ranch in a while, Robert Bigelow built a bunch of budget hotels, or long-stay apartments. Yeah, they're, for they're the, extended stay. Yeah, extended, extended stay, stay for hotels. the transient members of the <laughs> Las Vegas working <laughs> community. do say transient. No, I, transient, yes. I don't mean <laughs> right. transient, like under a bridge. Right. Uh, all due respect to folks that live under a bridge, I mean transient, like you come into town, you work yeah, for exactly. a couple months, and you leave. Exactly. And this made him a billionaire. A billionaire, with a B. He has a fascination with UFOs. Having seen one when he was a young man, and if you want to find out more about that, he was on 60 Minutes last year where he talked at great length with- Lara Logan. Thank you, yeah. Lara and, Logan.
1: But here the significant thing is that he does not give interviews very frequently at all. And no, so he has not was, returned my calls. That was amazing. <laughs> Ours and, and, and not many people Everybody else's, yeah. So what we're seeing here as the significance to telling everybody about this is that- You're starting to see people come out and talk, people, individuals, entities come out and talk about this stuff, and they really haven't. So what's going on here? You know, because that interview on 60 Minutes, I I think was back in May of 2017. Yes. When it first aired. Why is this now coming to the forefront
2: here? Is it leaning towards, Rob, disclosure? Disclosure? Yeah. What is happening? happening? Why, why is this uh, happening now? Why did this hit the front page of the New York Times? Also, here's the other thing for those of you who don't know. And by the way, this is a roundtable. I know that Rob isn't talking a whole lot. We're going to let him talk. <laughs> We're not railroading him. Yeah. But the idea was for everybody to just pitch in here when they wanted to. But I wanted to say just quickly, there's this idea of a news dump which is usually reserved for politics, where you release the bad news Friday night or whatever. And I'm not saying this is bad news, but right. they did publish this on Sunday, which is a big day for the paper, sure. but it also was a week before Christmas. And there was a big reaction to it, but then it just gets shuffled. Everyone goes off to be with their families for the holidays, the Hanukkah, whatever. And so it's weird how the time that it came out, but also, again, it's this front page piece. So I mean, Rob, what, what do you think is behind that?
3: Well, I think a lot of it has to do with Luis Elizondo himself leaving the Pentagon and the Department of Defense and going to work for Tom DeLonge's new fledgling company to the stars Academy of Arts and Sciences. Okay, Um, um,
2: Ryan, just a little message for our sound designer. I would like you to insert a record scratch sound effect there. (laughs) Tom DeLong, what else does he do, Rob?
3: Well, he used to be the lead guitarist and vocalist for Blink-182. Okay,
2: so now we're connecting this classified Pentagon program, not only with Skinwalker Ranch and former Congressman Harry Reid, but Blink-182. Yeah, yes. Okay, all right, I just wanted to make sure I was clear on that.
3: If we want to connect it even to a song, uh, if you go to their uh, album, I believe it's called Enema of the State, there is a song on there called Aliens Exist. Aliens Exist. (laughs) Yes. So,
2: uh, yeah, here we go. I'm looking at it on Spotify right now. Well, that's not unusual, though, because you'll
1: have somebody with the means and meaning money, enough saved up and a definite passion for this, which is that's Robert Bigelow just has an exponentially larger sum than I'm sure Tom does. I'm sure that he's funneling into this, but somebody who's willing to be seen as eccentric and form some kind of an agency
2: to study this further. Here, listen to this uh, section of lyrics from Aliens Exist. What if people knew that these were real? I'd leave my closet door open all night. I know the CIA would say, what you hear is all hearsay. I wish someone would tell me what was right sounds like he's had an experience of some kind.
3: It always comes off that way when you listen to it, yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah. I think the most interesting parts of the Robert Bigelow aspect is that there are certain things that came to light a few years ago that we can now trace to this program, the first being the uh f a a it was an air traffic organization policy. It was in chapter nine, section eight. It was saying that if you wanted to report a UFO, you report it to Bigelow aerospace, essentially. And also, uh, back in 2009, Robert Bigelow started to funnel some money into MUFON and their star team investigations in order to get back some hard data. So these loose you know, connections are finally starting to come together into a little more of a tapestry because Robert Bigelow, he's a really private guy, but there's always something that leaks out some way, gets to the public. And, and he never seems to be the kind of guy that enjoys that because like, even in his interview, he's annoyed by the question of <laughs> that he's asked about if aliens exist
2: yeah
1: because yeah. <laughs> you right. get it all the time look how many times have i heard a forest gump joke Oh, yeah. And you, or, or I don't, I'm not even going to say it, Rob. I'm not. Okay. I'm I, not even, even going to go there. But you understand? I understand. I'm fortunate you understand. in this department.
2: Nobody. You know, well, a billion th- people are named Scott. And no one's named Phil Brooks.
1: So. Other than they think your first name is Phil and your last name is Brooke. That's true. That's my name is three first names Scott, right. Phil, Brooke. You don't get mad at it. It's like, okay, that's that's original. Thank you. That's yeah. very funny. <laughs> you You just had to ask. But it's like with, we just interviewed Dr. Taylor, uh, yes. Daniel C. Taylor, about the Yeti. And he's like, Yes, oh my gosh, you know, I want to talk about the conservation of the area, the nature, the people, the culture, all this. And people just want to know, like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But is the Yeti real? Is it real? Is it, what is it? Is it a bear? And he's like, Ah, oh, yes. Okay, we could talk about that. And it's he, a was great very, accent. he was very great. Well, that's the problem is he had with the BBC when he last interviewed us because he just got done doing an interview with them and they're well respected news organizations. Yeah, as much as any of them are nowadays. But with the BBC, Dr. Taylor was saying it's like you think it's the BBC and it's for the science aspect of it because DNA had just been released. But really, all they wanted to ask me is, is the Yeti real? And he said, God, I, I'm so glad that you guys, yeah, I'll I'll we'll talk about that. But you guys are much more interested in the, the entire story that surrounds that. And that's why... Well, that's where the real story yeah, is. It's never exactly. in the
2: one salacious detail that everybody no, wants the answer th- to. that's
1: the headline. And I think that's why you guys got along so well, Scott, in your interview with him, is that you respected the overall idea. So when you talk about Robert Bigelow, it's like, it's not just little green men. It's like, we're creating expandable, inflatable space modules that can be used.
2: Yeah, that's on the the, ISS right now, developed by Bigelow Aerospace. Exactly. And and one of
1: his quotes is that we're all fettered by
2: technology
1: and its limitations in transportation. You know, his thing is that the business world is going to pioneer this because the government world is too secretive. They hold on to all the cards. And it's like, well, we should be enjoying these technological advances no matter where they come from. What I'm getting at is
2: I'm sure he's very tired of just the alien question and he kind of bristles and that's why he doesn't do many interviews. But here's the other thing about that. And, and Rob, I'm curious what you think about this too, because when you pull back to the, as Forrest sometimes says, which I guess is some really abhorrent business term, the 10,000 foot view, right? <laughs> well, is that what it, the 10,000? Yeah. No, that's another bi- Yeah, business. Yeah, one. we're Let about to have a big out of the box yeah. and look at the 10,000 foot view on this. <laughs> when you look at the 10,000 foot view on the timeline of events over the past year or two, things are coming out. And what I would say, from the big picture, feels like a very calculated way. because Interesting. when you take a look at this, you've got Bigelow, right, going on 60 freaking minutes. A guy who doesn't want to do interviews, doesn't want to talk to anybody. Yeah. Why did he go on 60 minutes? And not only that, he went on there and said, hey, yeah, here's a here's my building. Look, it's got a picture of an alien on it. Yeah. And yeah. then <laughs> uh, he's doing all that stuff, talking to Laura Logan, answering, aliens definitely exist, he says, because he doesn't ever want to be asked that question again. That was at the very then, end, sure, yeah. 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 And so he's doing that. That was May, right? So seven months later, <laughs> we've got a front page New York Times piece about Luis Elizondo resigning from this department because of all the secrecy around it and becoming part of blink One Eight two. Becoming a a part of Tom DeLonge's organization. And that's the other question I have. Is this just Luis Elizondo trying to bring attention? How does this To the Stars thing work, Rob? What can you tell us about this organization? Because that's what this guy that ran the department at the
3: Pentagon is now a part of, right? I will read you verbatim their mission statement. Okay. Okay. To the Stars Academy strives to be a powerful vehicle for change by creating a consortium among science, aerospace, and entertainment that will work collectively to allow gifted researchers the freedom to explore exotic science and technologies with the infrastructure and resources to rapidly transition them to products that can change the world. And the first image I ever got in my head was from The Matrix and that one scene where Morpheus is uh, holding the battery and Neo's freaking out about it. That's kind of how I took it, but it's kind of a a really weird conglomeration of, we're going to do science, we're going to do entertainment too. And uh, (laughs) it's not totally clear how all of it's going to fit together, but he has a pretty extensive list of people that are on the To the Stars Academy board that have a lot of credentials, including, uh, if we're going to connect to Robert Bigelow, the biotech consultant is uh, Colm Kelleher.
1: Yeah. That's our man. George Knapp had written the book Hunt for Skinwalker.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, uh, yeah. oh, it sounds like there's a connection there. Yeah,
2: <laughs> there is the... Interesting. Well, that's... <laughs> Kelleher would be the scientific portion of the two gentlemen who wrote The Hunt for Skinwalker. Yeah, George
1: Knapp is the George journalist. George made yes. it a story.
2: Yeah. Kelleher was part of the study at the ranch that was trying to ascertain what was going on there. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to reiterate that for our listeners who haven't listened in a while. So... Comb is on the board at Blink 182's new movie making <laughs> science venture and I know I'm being facetious it's Tom DeLonge of Solo by the way no offense Tom I want to talk to you so I'm going <laughs> to be blew that out. thank no, you no no I'm serious yeah. I actually like them <laughs> but here's the, the point I think where you're talking about entertainment is that
1: entertainment and we've mentioned this before I think whenever we touch on the uh, subject of uh, aliens and disclosure is that you are seeing a gradual insertion and acceptance over time, that's going less goofy and being more serious about it. Look at the movies like Arrival. Yeah. The more recent ones where it's like, well, what would happen if we were suddenly presented with this? And you look at the movies that are more sensationalized or trying to scare you, like signs where they're incorporating a bunch of different things, but ultimately it's green people who are shooting poison gas out their wrists at you to a more intelligent and uh, more thoughtful, I think, approach to it is that there is a feeling that via entertainment we are being conditioned to be
2: okay with the idea. Well, it's fascinating you should say that because this is something that goes way back, and I'm not going to get into it right now because I didn't prepare for this line of discussion at all, but I do (laughs) remember— Nor did
1: I for any of this, really. Yeah,
2: We never prepare. But I do remember when we were talking about Oak Island, and one of the ideas that we were exposed to during the research on that was that the idea of Shakespeare, whether Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare or it was Sir Francis Bacon, was that what was happening there was that information was being conveyed to the masses almost surreptitiously through entertainment yeah. and to give them a chance to broaden their minds, whatever the larger reason was, because there oh, weren't other ways for them to obtain ah. this information about how things work at the castle with the king. And You're talking about the, the plays of Shakespeare. Yeah, actually. the plays yes, specifically. Right, right. Yeah. So <laughs> it's interesting to me though, yeah. because this is one of those things when I'm like, you know, it's that shower thoughts moment when you're like, guys, you know, I'm washing what little hair I have left. And and (laughs) the I'm thinking, God, that movie, like, Arrival, that's, wow, that's really, talk about thinking outside the box. And this seems like some of these things, some aspects of this movie or that movie or this story, that seems really hard to creative out of thin air. And I'm like, I wonder if they're giving us information. They're preparing us for well, some that, future revelation. And then the next thing I say is you are a complete nut.
1: <laughs> that's, well, that's also, well the, it's, the, that's also what they want you to think. Right. But Rob, going directly off that, tell us about the idea that certain government agencies, agents, actors are feeding this stuff to the entertainment industry for our elucidation.
2: Well,
3: the most famous person to ever come forward with the idea that, hey, there are government agents out there putting disinformation is Richard Doty, And if the listeners have never watched the documentary or read the book called Barrage Men, it is a fantastic look into that entire aspect. But essentially, it's this really weird operating machine, like in terms of, Controlling public perception. So you got people like Richard Doty, who has admitted to putting false information out there all the time. And you also have the Hollywood aspect now where you are controlling how people view this phenomenon to begin with the extraterrestrial hypothesis which is what this is dealing with started to really you know give rise with with works like War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells it started in fiction and it started to kind of really take off with the works of Charles Fort because he relied on that hypothesis big time and it continued to grow and to grow into the Hollywood scene and science fiction as a genre of literature, and until it made its way into UFO research, and that's largely the way in which we view things. There are other hypotheses out there, but it's the one that we rely on because the other main one, and the one that John Keel was really grooving on, was the uh, interdimensional hypothesis. And at a certain point, you ask yourself, well. If they have these craft and they're capable of travel, which is going to cost more energy, getting here from all the way across the universe or punching a hole into somebody else's reality? Yeah. So that's the interesting aspect about this whole thing is like there is a certain public perception aspect to it all. Even when you talk about men in black encounters, that's just a tiny portion of it, but uh, at that point, they're trying to control your perception of things too, and it's all a weird machine that like works together, and like you only get bits and pieces of it at a time, but it's fascinating to kind of try and digest here and there. Do you think that is the result of some kind of
2: large, coordinated conspiratorial effort, or more, just kind of happen stance that is, you know, just a byproduct of all of these different things functioning independently?
3: I kind of think it's maybe a little bit of both. Um, I think there's definitely an independent aspect to it, but there's a definite intentional aspect, especially when you talk about the office of uh, that uh, Richard Doty worked for, which I think was OSI, just going out there and feeding false information out there and the way he described it is he would put one truth between uh, two lies and all that so uh, it's tough to really kind of totally grasp on how it how it works but I think there's definite intention while working independently of itself
2: This is Kevin Hughes. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. I want to read now this quote from the Times piece, which is a very long article, but it is very interesting. This is uh, a Pentagon spokesman, Thomas Crosson said in an email, I suppose, to one of the authors of the Times article, it was determined that there were other higher priority issues that merited funding, and it was in the best interest of the Department of Defense to make a change. So that's when they shut it down. And the, the next paragraph says that Mr. Elizondo said the only thing that ended was the efforts government funding, That ended in 2012, but after that, in an interview, he said he worked with officials from the Navy and the CIA and continued to work out of the Pentagon until October when he resigned, protesting, as Forrest said earlier, the excessive secrecy and also internal opposition. Elizondo is quoted as saying, why aren't we spending more time and effort on this issue? He said that actually in a resignation letter that he sent to Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. So this is a guy that obviously takes this very seriously. I love the picture of him in the New York times. He's, forlornly looking out of a window from a restaurant. but uh, <laughs>
3: And I like how in the picture too like through the glass it looks like there's a UFO over his head even though it's like a ceiling fixture. Oh yeah, yeah. It's very nice.
2: That's a good point. Yeah. But you know in one of the things that they said in the Vanity Fair piece by Joe Pompeo was that you know they said the Times wanted this story like all their stories to be airtight. And obviously they've made mistakes. All newspapers make mistakes. Some of them very famous. But considering they've been around since 1853 and you know thousands of people have worked there that's to be expected. But on the whole they're considered very reliable in terms of journalism. It's interesting to me how internally at the New York Times, based on the research we did associated with this article, that all the people behind getting it published had different opinions. In fact, the executive editor, Dean Baquet, who we mentioned earlier, his quote at the end of the Vanity Fair piece by Joe Pompeo is, quote, I wouldn't say it made me a believer. End quote. For him, as you said, you mentioned earlier, Forrest, this was about this black money and the Pentagon budget and this thing that taxpayers are paying for. And yes, it's interesting. It has a human interest component almost in terms of like the esoteric idea of UFOs and all that. So this is a gonna this is gonna sell newspapers and get eyeballs. Sure. But uh, by the same token, there's money tied up in this story as well, and that's not false. It's our taxpayer dollars. We,
1: I believe, have a right to know what it's being spent on. And like he said, he just thought that was an interesting, really interesting angle. And of course, people are going to uh, tune in and forward this, and it and it kind of blew up. I believe it was their most forwarded news clip or email link to date. I don't know about all time, but but certainly in recent, uh, you know, in the recent past year here, and was a very successful article to have published. But of course, I believe that he's got to come at it that way. Like I said earlier, is that he's got to see it from the point of view as like, well, it's, it's government spending, possibly some government infighting. It has to do with uh, military intelligence. And so, you know, he's coming at it from hard news, which he has to. Now, Leslie Keene, though, one of the three journalists on the New York Times article, she was saying over email that it wasn't so much about getting the story into a venerable newspaper like the Times, but that it was also crucial, quote, that the story uncover official participation in investigating the unidentified objects. That is the most important element. Right. So that's what I was saying is that it's government official recognition of something strange. Now, the biggest, about, I'll ask each of you guys what the biggest thing that popped out at you was, but to me, well, people are always asking. There's no proof. There's no proof of any alien craft. We don't have that. Certainly the public doesn't, except that's what's happening here. Maybe we do have a little bit of quote-unquote proof. Again, from the Vanity Fair article, it's saying on MSNBC, one of the authors of the Times story, Ralph Blumenthal, talked about the existence inside a Las Vegas storage facility of, quote, some material from these objects that is being studied so that scientists can try to figure out what accounts for their amazing properties. It's some kind of compound that they don't recognize. So that, to me, is the piece uh, that kind of popped out at me and that was the wow factor.
2: Yeah, and this is Ralph Blumenthal, who is the Times journalist saying this, and this Las Vegas storage facility, there's no question that that's Bigelow. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. That's
1: where they built uh, these facilities, and he has the means and the money and the organization to do it to bring in real scientists to study this. Now, of course, people will say like, well, until we see it, I'm not going to believe that, you know, until they come out with some results, they show it on TV. So you could say that, but it's, it would be a, an elaborate hoax of like, well, it turned out to be silly putty. We don't know what we were studying and it turned out to be a huge misdirection and we're just soaking the public for funds. But that's also a great angle you could say about Bigelow is that he has his own money. He's not doing this to get any more government funds. He's certainly not using his own money as much, or if he can, get some government budget to study this and the connections that go with that. But to me, it's like, there's material. I want to know the story on that. Where did that come from? I know what's your take, Rob, on this, about like the Maori Island incident in Washington State, but several craft had dropped some globs of like what looked like molten metal that rained down on a family fishing boat that was immediately collected by the military and transported away, where the plane crashed en route to an Air Force base.
2: What's the story there, Rob?
1: What's your take on it? What I'm alluding to is that there, at that case, if you accept the general principle of the story to be true is that there's actually material that was ejected that was right. taken to be studied. Now I believe that plane crash was real.
3: Yes, it was. Right. Um, the first episode of Bill Burns, UFO hunters, that's exactly what they investigated. Exactly. was The Maury Island incident and the crash. Yeah, that's where um, I and saw And they it. went looking for some of that molten, uh, because they said it like hardened, like a rock once it hit the water. And they ended up, uh, I think they went scuba diving to see if they could find some, but also They went looking in the woods to see if they could locate the area where the plane had crashed to see if there was, you know, any kind of debris or anything left. This is not the only case where we have actually had metal alloys, though. There's another interesting case from 1967, a guy named Robert Richardson. He's driving at night with his buddy Jerry Quay. They're in uh, Ohio, and it's about 1130 at night, and he's coming around a bend, and he sees an object, a really bright object in the middle of the road, and he tries desperately to stop the car, but it ends up making contact with it. He investigates the area. He tries to find any trace evidence, uh, and he even brings the police out there, but they don't find anything. But the next day, he looks at the front bumper of his car and there's a piece of metal that he presumes from the craft stuck in the front bumper. And also there's a section of the bumper itself that looks like uh, the chrome has been stripped away. And what was interesting is, is when they analyzed the metal, they didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. And I think with the metal alloy that they're talking about in the article, like I really want to know a lot more because, uh, and I'm gonna put on my Chris Cogswell hat here for a second. <laughs> the <laughs> alien—it's an engineer's if, if cap. By the, the aliens way. don't have a different periodic table than we do, so they may be elements you know combined a little differently. But I don't think it's going to be anything all that radical. Granted, you know, there are cases like, for instance, Roswell, where people claim to have pieces from the actual craft and it resembled aluminum foil. And when you crumpled it up and opened your hand, it would go back to its original state. And that's always been an interesting story, but we've never actually seen any of that. But the metal alloy, it definitely, it's the one piece that it almost seems like it's inserted as like a flyby, you know, here, like, you're just going to pass over this. And it's like, what? You have metal alloys from potential UFOs? Yeah. Tell me more. Yeah. Tell me more.
2: (laughs) And that's the thing. I mean, what is happening out at Bigelow's facility in Vegas? I mean, in addition to the fact that he's there, and that's where he took Lara Logan, and they they went inside, and here we're developing this expandable module for the ISS, which we're testing right now, et cetera, et cetera. And his ideas for that, or his engineer's ideas for that, there's some question as to, are they just organic ideas? Which they entirely might be. I would say the expandable space module.
1: Oh, are you, are you saying it's possibly? Now, that's one of the ideas I well, Major maybe Major Philip Corso influenced. was
2: saying, is it is
1: reverse-engineered
2: technology. Possibly. Maybe. Right? Maybe it isn't. I mean, no one else had thought of it up until now. When you think about all the engineers at NASA who are trying to find different ways to get to Mars and other planets, you would think that this is an idea that might have occurred to them instead of a guy that started a bunch of hotels in Vegas, but I don't know. I'm well, just, he's, well he's, um, not under the, he's not
1: using the microscope himself. he has got He's hired people to do yeah, that. Yeah, I know, yeah. but
2: where's the seed of it? Of course, you know, maybe he found some genius guy who was not working for the government who was saying, you know, I, what if these were like balloons, you well, know? Well, it's, and, hey, and the,
1: one of my favorite scenarios, it's the S.E. Haddon scenario where you yeah. have this shadowy billionaire that frightens Marie May Mayhew, to no end. Yeah. Uh, that is pulling the <laughs> strings on all this stuff, but is essentially good, but he has to operate outside of the government channels because the government is essentially dysfunctional. They can't get anything done and agree on anything. So he's going to take it upon himself using his massive fortune and connections. This isn't from the movie uh, Contact, where he's going to get Jodie Foster another opportunity because they built a second machine to travel interdimensionally. So the point here, though, is that when you talk about uh, elements, Rob, you'll know about this. It's like Bob Lazar claiming that there is a recovered... Element, I think, 117, one element 118. It's uh,
3: 115. Yeah, there you
1: go. Well, I've heard of it. There's new elements. If <laughs> you go online, of course, it's like, well, there's another one now. 115, 116, 117, they're at to the 118, that these are just previously undiscovered. Or it could be a combination of something that we don't know about yet. Those discoveries are being made all the time by metallurgists and our own scientists here. So it's not
2: anything too crazy. It's not something mystical. But it still has its place, you know, to Rob's point, I think it still has its place on the periodic chart. Yeah,
1: but that was Bob Lazar's claim is that, yes, it's a new element that has energy-releasing capabilities that are mind-blowing, And that's what they're using to propel themselves uh, interdimensionally. So here, though, it doesn't even sound that crazy. It's just like some kind of metal that was recovered from something, some kind of crash where they look at it. It's like, well, this with spectral analysis, this doesn't look like anything that we know of currently. And again, this is not just high school kids in a science class. These are top of the industry professionals and some of our top scientists who know what they're talking about.
2: It's been a while since we did the Skinwalker series, but wasn't there a part of that that was connected to the presence of an unusual metal on the ranch?
1: Oh, the carbon rods or the uh, the
2: rod yeah. metal? Yeah. I can't remember much about it now because it's been so long since we did. I need to listen to it again. But.
1: And again, what I'm saying is that that's the only the pieces you're hearing about. What stuff do they have in their possession? That nobody knows about yet. And of course, Rob will also know about this. Some of the parts go off to different Air Force bases like Wright-Patterson. Yeah. That was one claim by somebody who saw the crates being boxed up after Roswell that some uh, were slated to go to different Air Force bases, but all hush-hush. So who
2: knows what's in their warehouse 13? Yeah. I want to read this one little paragraph from the article that was one of the most exciting ones for me. And I know I already said that, but this truly was. But it also was the biggest disappointment, and I'll explain it in a second. Mr. Reed said his interest in UFOs came from, that's Harry Reed, by the way, his interest in UFOs came from Mr. Bigelow. In 2007, Mr. Reed said in an interview, Mr. Bigelow told him that an official with the Defense Intelligence Agency had approached him wanting to visit Mr. Bigelow's ranch in Utah, where he conducted research. I was excited to see a reference to Skinwalker Ranch in the New York Times connected to a front page story. I was disappointed that the word skinwalker didn't appear there. But uh <laughs>
3: okay. but yeah, yeah. well <laughs> you know that's
2: not, you're going too far then.
3: Yeah. Well that's what everyone calls it. I call no wonder if Bigelow probably
2: yeah. doesn't call it that.
3: But actually Marie Mayhew's ability to dig into something and and find <laughs> yeah. tangible stuff is incredible and One of her great obsessions is Robert Bigelow. Oh, Oh,
2: yes. Just quickly want to say, for those that don't know, Marie is greatly involved in our podcasting circle. She's a member of the Astonishing Research Corps. You can find her on Twitter as Mommy in Exile. She's frequently on another member's own podcast. He has a show called The Mad Scientist Podcast. His name is Chris Cogswell, who we were referring to earlier, who also just became, just became the director of research for MUFON. Right. (laughs) he just, just, he just has to go through a midnight ceremony. Is all that's left. Yeah, you know? right, right. Yeah. He's got. Well, he's already yeah. got the email address. He sent me. I am thrilled right. to say that I got the very first email from that account. Yeah, uh, well, director of research at Mufon. So that's. I mean, this guy's like. He's just came out of the blue. He's in the research core now. He's got his own show. He's running Mufon. Yeah, As I, we're, we've well, been left makes in the me dust. now, wonder now. Uh, <laughs> anyway, who planted him there? Yeah, yeah. what we did. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's where that's how we found them, but yes. So anyway, I wanted to explain a little bit about Marie, who is uh, one of our valued members of the Research Corps and has her own shows and all kinds of things going. Yeah. Uh, what, what
3: did she find? Yeah. Essentially, she found a copyright for the term Skinwalker Ranch belonging to whoever owns that property. Oh. Yes. How well, did it's, she it's find that? A,
1: it's a brand. Yeah, don't ask. But uh
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's part of her uh, personal passion I believe
1: and also uh comes with her job skills set for real life. But what's interesting though is that it's a brand kind of now. It's an entity and still not a lot of people know about it, but now what we're seeing here, especially with this New York Times piece and these names that are coming up, is that I believe this is the next generation of study in this field, where now the names are Bigelow and colm Kelleher and Tom DeLong, And this is our next generation of people who are moving forward with taking this seriously and researching it and have the means to do it along the lines of what you and Rob had talked about is that there is some coordinated elements and probably a lot of things that are happening just by happenstance in coming together to kind of make it the flap of late 2017. In my view, that's the feeling that I got when these articles started popping up. But I guess what I was going to point towards Rob here is that Rob, do you see anything coming in the near future? That's even going to be more mind blowing Or do you get a feeling like, well, we're going to coast here on this slow walking pace and have these things bubble up? Or do you think this is building towards something?
3: I think we're in a slow and steady wins the race kind of moment right now, Hmm. because this article in The Times, it's really curated. It's giving you like, because not only is he talking about metal alloys, but he also mentioned... uh, that they studied people who claim to have experienced physical effects from UFOs and also more military individuals. So I think if we're doing the scientific approach to this, like the hardcore scientific approach that is apparent in To The Stars Academy's lineup here, they're going to take some time. It's going to be a slow release kind of thing. It may build to something, but I think it's going to take us a couple of years at least, if anything, you know, big. Comes out, but uh, I think it's just going to be fun to be along for the ride for the next few years because it seems like Robert Bigelow's probably got some decent evidence, at least in in his facility. So yeah, I think slow over time is is what we're going to get.
1: Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. Uh, what was interesting is that nobody's showing all their cards. Why would you? Any entity? Why would you do that? From a private perspective, here as a private businessman, Bigelow hinted at that. In the 60 Minutes interview, that's the feeling that I got is, look, well, I'm not going to tell you everything we got here, but I got some stuff that'll blow your mind. Yeah. And I've certainly, we've certainly got some uh Yeah, he's you know, learned like, what I like to call the Willy Wonka approach. <laughs> no, stop, don't. <laughs> Wait, well, it's like, yeah, he's not going to tell you how how the, how the TV is beaming the candy or the kids through the air. They get shrunk down, but you can see it happening and just know that like uh, there's Oompa Loompa somewhere, something magical is happening that he's got his hands on. That he's being coy about because, again, the more you say then the more pointed
2: your tinfoil hat becomes. But there, and there's so much of this going on right now with these public-facing billionaires and this secretive stuff happening in the background. I think it's really fascinating how the private sector has been incorporated into this kind of stuff. When you go way back and you look at Howard Hughes and the Glomar Explorer, which was that ship that he built that looked like a freighter or something on the top, but underneath it was some real James Bond crap where it yeah. like opened up and could recover a submarine from the bottom of the ocean, which right. is the whole reason it was built. It was unsuccessful, but mechanically, that's what it did. Doors open up. Like, I'm just seeing, like, a really bad miniature in a 1970s James Bond. (laughs) But the door would open up, and the things would go down and pluck this wrecked Russian sub off the bottom of the ocean. That's why you love me. Yeah, Yeah. I can't remember what they built it for. But my point is that Hughes was wrapped up in all this kind of top-secret classified stuff. And maybe it's a game that's been going on forever. But now it seems that, you know, that NASA has been largely defunded and all this money is really moving on. So we've got not just Bigelow, who's kind of the quiet guy, and also he's a billionaire, but he's not like crazy billionaire. He's not like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates. God only knows if what those guys are up to, 80, 100 billion. I think he's only got a few billion. I'm not saying I would, you know, look <laughs> down my nose at, that. at the billions. <laughs> yeah. but, but they're using theirs for more
1: uh, pedestrian reasons. I mean, good well, you know, things like Bill Gates and Melinda Gates. Saving, eradicating malaria. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. They're, I don't know if that's pedestrian. Right. He's <laughs> not, he's not, well, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, earth, earth bound. Yes. As this article likes to point as to. Far as far as we know. Well. Th-
2: as far as, as we know. But then you got Bezos and Right. And Bezos, I just saw a headline today. It says he's worth $106 billion. Yeah. And then uh, we've got Musk who's like joking about Teslas or whatever and then secretly launching spy satellites at night. And yeah. it, that guy can clearly keep a secret. You know, he surprised everyone. He rolled his little sports car out of the truck <laughs> at the truck thing. <laughs> you, you know, there's so yeah. much stuff going on there. But by the same token, now you're getting all these personalities caught up in this, which is really interesting to me. It's like Bigelow doesn't really want to talk to anybody. He believes what he believes. He's got the money and he's doing X, Y, and Z. Then you've got Tom DeLong coming into the picture. You've got Musk over here who likes to joke and hype, all kinds of things. He's very much of a P.T. Barnum, in my opinion, in terms of what's coming out. He sure. just kind of says yeah. whatever he wants to say. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of his, by the way, but yes. but he says a lot of things that can't be delivered. But then, by the same token, that night, he's launching, you know, the spy satellites. My understanding, by the way, that that failed. The satellite was lost. I dig it's lost. They're yeah. not sure what happened. Which is it. a bummer yeah. I, for him, I guess. I don't well, know if it's cheap. a bummer for me. I yeah. don't know what, you know, maybe it was going to watch me in my underwear in the house. I don't know. But like, <laughs> Then they, they, then they, they, they decided
1: they, to just scuttle <laughs> it after realizing that like,
2: it was possible. Hit the destruction. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much happening here. And I guess part of why I wanted to make this, the you know, I was interested in making this the first show of this year was that I feel like there is a big picture change happening overall in that there's a lot going on and people kind of aren't really paying attention to it. Everyone's kind of numb and uh, everyone is super distracted by the current state, at least in the United States or the current state of politics here. And all this stuff is just kind of happening in the background. That's like a sea change. Change is going to happen
1: via what Bigelow was getting at, is that it's not going to happen behind closed military facilities or the deep underground military bases, the dumbs. You'll never see that stuff because, as we've said before, I think that was uh, actually it was one of the great courses, the uh, things we were talking about, one of the professors said about military technology. That was at great battles that changed the course of history. Every technology that comes to the forefront, whether it's the wheel, or the spear, or the bow, or the club, is all firstly designed towards a military purpose of either aggression or defense. So that's where it goes, militarily-wise. Like, how can we turn this thing into a kill vehicle that can travel at Mach 20?
2: Cut to those freaky robot dogs pretending to be Santa Claus. (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) Yeah, or now that it was it. the
1: one professor that they did the video about little kill drones. Oh, yeah. That That was amazing. Did you see that,
2: Rob? Yeah,
1: Yeah, yeah, deliver a little charge and it's like nothing can stop. You can't run from them. And that's certainly horrifying. What Bigelow is saying is that if we are to enjoy any of these technologies that who knows where they came from, maybe reverse engineered from some strange craft that we don't know about, we, the people should be enjoying this and it's going to be the private sector that brings it to us. That's going to develop it. Yeah. I mean, yes, they're all out to make money, of course, as any corporation does, but If we're going to see any of that uh, gain, it's going to come from the efforts and the fruits of the private sector, not from the military or not from the government. That was Bigelow talking about Musk and Bezos and all their efforts is that that's where it's headed and that's the future because that's what's holding us back. You know, think about it. We all deal with transportation every day. We all deal with these technologies that could be making life so much easier, but they're not. Why? Because it's now a top secret government thing that we'll never know about. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows, you know, I hate to see the day that that's brought out. Like, how desperate does that have to be?
0: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. According to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Ashley, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
1: So the clip that appears in the online version of the New York Times article features a infrared monitor clip of what two pilots saw, two Navy pilots off the coast of California near San Diego and they're glowing objects, and they're kind of very puzzled and weirded out because this is nothing like they've ever seen, and these people are flying the most advanced fighter planes that we have in our arsenal. At the time, yeah, at, it was 2004
2: F-A-18 Super Hornets.
1: Right, still yeah. a viable plane, so yeah. you know, not F-35s or F-22s, but certainly at the time, they're viewing this like, these things are moving like nothing that is possible, and that's what's freaking them out. So what we have there is that you have some actual documentation by credible witnesses. And, and that's, again, what I'm getting at is that if people will say like, well, it's just stuff that we don't know about that is also deep, deep black on black military, and they don't care that they're bringing it out and, and and pilots might even be shooting at it because we have the technology to evade that. That's my point. It's so black on black, deep underground. Not even our regular military, you could say, Air Force uh, or Navy knows about this yet and considers that an unknown maneuver, possibly hostile. That's why it was sent to, they were sent to go check this out, that it's so deep we'll never see this. And so what's the point? When do we see it? That's the scary question. When does this stuff get brought out, if ever? You don't see it. It's an offensive weapon. Well, the people that see it don't live here. Well, that's (laughs) that's what I'm saying. It's like, what war? Certainly we've had skirmishes. What war is that brought out on? You know, Armageddon? Then you see the things that travel, uh, you know, interdimensionally and kill you, you know, from five dimensions away. So that's my point is that even our standard military is baffled by this stuff. And the government that's above surface is studying it in, you know, chime in on this, Rob, if you want, the government within the government that apparently a lot of people believe in, even Jesse Marcel Jr., the son of the man who made the uh, Roswell pieces public, came out and said that, yeah, he believes there's a government within a government that is pulling the strings on this because he claims he was introduced to some of them. And so what's going on there? Where are these two factions going? What is that kind of infighting? Is that what... Elizondo was talking about when he was saying he was getting pushback and resistance so to me there are a lot of forces that are going on that we don't know about that control this and again there may not be any aliens in jars somewhere that's possible that none of that is real but i i firmly believe there's technology that is super super secret and and does things that we can't imagine now through conventional means that somebody has control over
3: an interesting aside, um, because it's basically Harry Reid that gets credit for putting this project together, but there are two other individuals on this: Ted Stevens, who was a representative from Alaska, yes, and Daniel Inouye of uh, Hawaii. And Inouye, he has this accredited statement where he basically alludes to there being a secret government within the government, and he delivered this statement back in the 90s. So it's interesting you say that and how that is now connected to this whole thing too. Also, in regards to the uh, 2004 sighting, another interesting aspect to this is that This is not the first time this story has been out there. This story has been around since uh, 2015 on a website called Fightersweep.com. And this is uh, basically where pilots tell their stories. Uh, I think they're all military pilots. In an article called, There I Was, The X-Files Edition. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing.
2: What's that website again? uh,
3: Fight or what? uh, Fightersweep.com. Oh, Fightersweep. It's basically uh, the Commander David Fravers story, but it's harder to read because it's all in that military jargon that they know so well. So at least with the times, they gave you a easier way to digest it. But yeah, that article's been out there for a while. And the only reason that I know this is because back in October, on George Knapp's Twitter feed, he actually posted a link to the article. And it talked about how the video that we got from To the Stars... Academy of Arts and Sciences. It was initially put up on YouTube back in 2015. It was taken off. And then a week after George Knapp posted the story and it kind of started to gain a little traction, they actually posted the video again. I believe it's on Jeremy Corbell's uh, website. It's just the same video that is in the Times article. So that's kind of interesting that they're giving us something that was already out there.
2: Yeah, and I, I thought that was interesting, too, because in the Times article, in, when I first mentioned this for our listeners who aren't familiar with the article we're talking about and how I had said that on page A22 of the uh, December 17th Sunday New York Times The whole page was dedicated to this, but it was two articles, the primary one being the cover article story that we talked about, Are UFOs Real? But then the secondary one was entitled, as I said earlier, Two Airmen and an Object That Accelerated Like Nothing I've Ever Seen, in quotes. It's that particular story. But in the main article from the cover... They say, uh, I'll quote it here. The program collected video and audio recordings of reported UFO incidents, including footage from a Navy F 18 Super Hornet showing an aircraft surrounded by some kind of glowing aura traveling at high speed and rotating as it moves. The Navy pilots can be heard trying to understand what they are seeing. Quote, there's a whole fleet of them, end quote, one exclaims. Defense officials declined to release the location and date of the incident. So this is what's interesting to me. But then in the very next article, the one that's dedicated to this, they mention that it's off the coast of San Diego in 2004. Yeah, about 100 miles. So why does the one article, these two articles are on the same page of the New York Times. One says they declined to say when and where. And then the next article that is focused on that particular incident specifically mentions that it's off the coast of San Diego. And the other thing that's interesting too about that, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, possibly next week about this particular incident. Yeah, I think we should because it's
1: it's interesting and and it is more of a firsthand account from very credible witnesses. Yeah,
2: it's fascinating. But I I guess what I would say, and Rob, you can tell me what you think about this since you're uh, focused in this field more than we are. But I mean, obviously there's the presence of, and it's something that Forrest was alluding to just a few minutes ago, there's the presence of unknown advanced military technology that's always out there. Just yesterday or the day before, uh, Secure Team Ten posted that video of some weird craft sitting on a makeshift runway in the Florida Everglades or something that looks oh, really? like the Batwing. Yeah, I guess you didn't see that, Forreston.
3: Yeah, but it's all it's all like white. Is yeah, it? it's white, it's white color. And yeah.
2: um, it's my understanding that Secure Team Ten has has been caught not always being truthful. So I don't necessarily know about the deductions that those guys are making. So anytime something like that is published because it feels very clickbaity, I'm always reserving my judgment on it, (laughs) you know, because why would this thing be sitting on a parking lot in the swamp? But by the same token, when you look at it, it looks like, something that bruce wayne is missing conventional yeah so there's all this you know could it be top secret whatever you know there's the aurora project and all those other ones which i'm sure you know more about than i do but you would think that an fa-18 super hornet pilot i mean you would think they would have top secret clearance but maybe they're not aware of like you said Forrest, of these above black projects but when you look at this video that's associated with this yeah. one sighting this thing is tumbling and rotating as it's flying. It That's, doesn't look like it has wings. Exactly. You can't tell where the propulsion is. That's
1: my point, is yeah. that you ask any pilot, anybody who loves planes, you don't have to fly. You, yeah. you know what's possible out there. And does it fly with conventional means? As we say, ballistic motion, you know, it's going in a straight line until it takes a, a, you know aeronautical turn. These things don't do that. And what's weird is that, yeah, this thing's glowing and it's rotating in the air. As we'll get into further uh, describing the article later, one of the pilots, Commander David Fravor, said that there was another object, which sounded to me like a USO. So we'll take a, a deeper look at that later. But like, there's yes, a bunch the, of
2: stuff going on. There's an undersea, uh, yeah. What is it? Underwater, unidentified, submerged object, right, Rob? That's a USO, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's correct. What's your take on that and the difference between uh, unknown, possibly foreign, and what I mean foreign, like alien craft and uh, top secret black military projects that are, or do you think maybe our airspace is being invaded by superior technology from other nations? in these cases, or what's your big picture view on that?
3: Um I think you kind of got to be open to all of that because it, you're the observer and you're observing something from a distance and you can't uh, assume at all that you know who's piloting it. So, or, and even to, there was that quote saying that these things are physical, but at the same time, they act like non-physical objects, especially, that uh, video of the tumbling object that was essentially going against the wind, it didn't act like a normal object does. So I think you kind of got to be open to all of it. Definitely keeping an open mind to the idea that, hey, some nations may ha- in in fact have more advanced stuff than we do. Um, back in the 90s, in uh, Belgium, there was a wave of sightings of black triangles and <laughs> One of the um, explanations that they came up with was that it was the U.S. military flying secret objects over their airspace. So like the, you could throw around that speculation all day and and definitely be open to it. But it's just that leap in logic is hard to make when we just don't have enough answers.
2: Right. And, and that's one of the quotes. That's another one of the I thought that was a good quote in the article. Hang on a second. While not addressing the merits of the program, Sarah Seeger, an astrophysicist at MIT, cautioned that not knowing the origin of an object does not mean that it is from another planet or galaxy. Quote, when people claim to observe truly unusual phenomena, sometimes it's worth investigating seriously, she said. But she added, what people sometimes don't get about science is that we often have phenomena that remain unexplained, end quote. The way that I look at it is that
1: if you think about phenomena as... A strange event that can be explained by science, even though we don't have the the tools yet to do it, but it's a natural phenomena, like ball lightning. And I understand that's what she's saying It's like it could very well be unexplained, unknown phenomena that we just don't have a definition for and have never seen before. And so it's freaking people out or it's an actual object. And that's the difference because to me, an object is not phenomena. It's solid. It's moving through the air at unbelievable speed against the wind beyond all reason that we know of. And somebody, something had to make it. It's not a ball of sea foam that's getting uh, tossed into the air that's somehow you know, glowing. It's, it's nothing so strange that, oh, well, it's an electrical phenomena that happens during storms or even something that's uh, electronic fog. It's not a strange phenomena that hurtles you through time and space unexpectedly. This is a piece of machinery, it appears to be. Yeah. So that's the difference. And, and I think what, yeah. It's been made. It's a physical That's object. what I'm saying. Yeah. Exactly. So if somebody made it, they know how to do it. Yeah, they're operating on some principles of science and manufacturing and engineering that we don't know about or that is not commonly known. So to me, that's not phenomena. That's a machine. And, Ooh. and so I think what Leslie Keen that is getting quite at, a little
2: conclusion there. Well, <laughs> that's, what,
1: well that's what, Leslie Keen <laughs> that's is not saying. Phenom- um, that's the
2: next t-shirt. That's not phenomenal. Well, maybe, maybe,
1: <laughs> maybe the, uh, the manufacturing of it incorporates some phenomena that yeah. we don't know or some p- principles. Doo-doo. Thank you. Of physics that we don't know about or engineering or chemistry. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's not a ghost. It's a machine. And what Leslie Keen is getting at is that definitely to her view, a serious journalist who studied this now for 20 years, these machines exist.
2: Well, Rob, so before we wrap up part one of this series, we're we're going to come back next week and talk about some of the other earth shattering articles and news that's come out just in the past few months, which is really interesting that that is in some ways connected to this stuff. But was there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about a little bit before we go today?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Back in 2009, Harry Reid essentially went to try to get the security for this project bumped up because he felt like what they were finding was so mind-blowing that it needed to be, that security just needed to be amped up. So he has a a, a briefing with the Pentagon in 2009. And in this uh, summary, he claims that there's a statement that, uh, What was once considered science fiction is now considered science fact. And the most frightening thing is, they say, the U.S. is incapable of defending itself against these technologies. Well, that's uh, encouraging news. There's no way to defeat them.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but so I, would I better ex- start studying expect them. Yeah, I would expect not. And uh, you can't hope for something like in Mars Attacks, where Slim Whitman songs yeah. make them explode. That's <laughs> such a great <laughs> make movie. Make their heads explode. It was dark humor, of course. And then there's kind of some gruesome moments in it. So yeah. It, yeah. Was a, yeah, it was very interesting in that respect. But you would expect that if they could somehow figure out how to get here, Their technology is way more advanced than ours, including their weaponry. Yeah, so of course it's going to be like Independence Day. Like you're going to have to knock out, uh, you know, some. That's that's just the thing. That's the thing I
2: always wonder: the idea of transportation, the idea of weaponry, of war, of peace, of whatever. Who's those are all like human constructs in a way. Oh, you mean like our needs to be violent and conquering yeah, and all that stuff? Yeah, or if there's attacking and yeah. defending or whatever, or because you could be evolved so far past that, you know? I mean, look at Star Trek. <laughs> the, the well, I guess dir- they wind up fighting in that. but the, I'm, Yeah, my, the my, Prime my, Directive, right? You're, yeah.
1: you're talking about, right. So, well, well that's not just that. The concept is not that far different if you buy into the different races of aliens, because as you'll hear on Rob's show, when you go check it out, he kind of lays out the basics of like, well, the reptilians, maybe not so nice taller and reptile brains, so they're kind (laughs) of like, they could just, you know, use their
2: long sticky tongue and eat you if that suits them better, but uh, he also said that Chris Christopherson, no relation, that's was a lizard man, which I'm very disappointed. Well, I think other... To think, me, he's the yeah. rubber duck from Convoy, as true. well as an amazing songwriter. Yeah, I don't think Rob came up with that. He's just repeating uh,
1: uh, yeah, what's, what's been uh, I'm bandied offended. about out there. <laughs> that He would even entertain the idea to yeah. with it.
2: Well, Christopherson was a Rhodes Scholar, is a Rhodes that's Scholar. That's true. That's true. Very and, smart uh, guy. The, the, the lizards are smart too, so...
1: Yeah, there you go. He also does great voiceover. So <laughs> the idea, though, is that there are other races out there with competing interests that do conflict, and there is some tension, that's what I'm saying, if you believe in the alien, what we are here on Earth, not Star Trek, but kind of similar, you know, there's Romulans, there's Klingon, kind of warlike. That's what I'm asking though,
2: is this like, is that all the universe is? We're going to find out that these creatures are just coming here to dominate us, or fight us, or take over, or fight each other, Is, is everything about fighting and territory, is there no peaceful coexistence anywhere?
1: Well, consider this then, if you do buy into the fact that, look, it's a vast universe, It's very unlikely that we're the only intelligent creatures out there capable of making things. And there's lots of arguments like, well, you know, there's bacteria out there and that's about the level that it's going to get. And obviously, you know, they would have built massive ships that arrived here with, you know, using fire. Well, if they're already here and they're already advanced and there's several types of species or competing races of aliens apart from us. Why haven't they done these things? Why don't we see large battles in the sky? And, you know, if you look at things like the battle over Nuremberg, maybe there have been in some kind of weird interdimensional thing, or maybe it was all just sun dogs. People saw yeah. the mistook ships and things being on fire and crashing and a huge dogfight fight in the sky. If they are already here and that is some of their aims, it may have already happened. According to logic, there would have already been an attempt to take us over and mine our resources, or maybe that's coming. But there are certainly different theories that include, you know, there's a reason that that hasn't happened yet, that we're kind of off limits. Of course, there are things that they can do, they can probe us, (laughs) they could do all all no, thank nasty, you. Yeah, it didn't sound fun. There's no gain. You don't get special superpowers.
2: What, we could also just be off limits by the limits of the universe. Maybe it is too far away. Maybe interdimensional travel is impossible to pull off or figure out, or no matter how advanced you are. Well, th- I mean, you know, or Maybe there's laws of physics that
1: prevent it. So maybe where this article and these mini revelations that have been popping up in the last couple of months, you know, where this is all going is that there are machines, I think, some kind of objects that are not... I, again, I will say not electromagnetic phenomena. It's not, doesn't seem to be natural. These things seem to be under intelligent control, moving in ways that are currently impossible by the, the laws of physics as we know them and seen by a lot of credible witnesses. So no little green men yet. And I think that was a big point of the uh, article that yeah. um, Elizondo was saying is that we're not talking about things popping up and you know pointing ray guns at us yet. These are just craft of some kind. And as I mentioned what Keene said, it's like the fact that it's being acknowledged that there are some strange vehicles out there of unknown origin should be noted. And it is significant that the government is finally, at least our government finally, because we're way behind other countries, that it's being noticed. And we're far behind other countries because South American countries, England, France even, Russia and China take it much more seriously than we do. Why are we so backwards? Well, is it because we have the most to hide? Yeah. Because we have the most secrets, therefore we're like, we're not really interested in checking this out because we kind of know what they are. Right. And part of them, maybe some of them, are ours. And it's something I've mentioned before, which is supposedly, I don't know if it's been debunked or how credible this is, but it's supposedly the deathbed confession of Ben Rich, who was the second director at Lockheed Skunk Works, the you know, top secret aerospace division. Yes. Responsible for some of the the wildest craft we have now that are publicly known. And where Orfeo Angelucci worked. Yeah, exactly. See, that's connected at least. Yeah. I personally believe that some of the things we see flying around are just very top secret craft devices that we have developed and we know about. That makes sense to me. But how much of it and is all of it something that's man-made? Or is it a small fraction? And if it is a small fraction, what are the other things? And did we get the knowledge to make what we have from that? Did we reverse engineer that? Where do we get that knowledge? Was it given to us? So I've read that people have tried to debunk this as far as Ben Rich actually saying this, but I want to read this excerpt from an article here uh, yeah, about Ben is, Rich. This yeah.
2: was collected by James Goodall, who was an aerospace journalist who wrote for publications like Jane's Defense Weekly. Yeah, no slouch there. That's yeah, the- Aviation Week and Space Technology and InterAvia. So he's apparently, according to this one website, which is where we found this, collectiveevolution.com, we have a link, which we will share. He's an accomplished speaker specializing in the history, development, and operation of the world's only Mach 3-capable manned air-breathing aircraft, the SR-71 family. And this article that we're pulling this stuff from appears on Collective Evolution written by Arjun Walia. So, anyway, hmm. there's a lot of fascinating quotes in here. But.
1: Yeah, there's some great mind blowing quotes that, uh, again, people could just write them off as like, well, he's eccentric, but this guy knew his field and was extremely well respected within it. But here's the passage Another source comes from John Andrews, who was a legendary Lockheed engineer. He had written to Rich, stating his own belief in UFOs, both man made and extraterrestrial. Andrews, has asked Rich if his own beliefs covered extraterrestrial as well as man-made UFOs. Rich's reply was as follows. Yes, I'm a believer in both categories. I feel everything is possible. Many of our man-made UFOs are unfunded opportunities. There are two types of UFOs, the ones we build and the ones they build.
2: That's going to wrap up our first show of 2018. Come back next week for more on this topic, including discussion about some additional things you might have missed over the past several months that all point to a major change in the acknowledgement of the existence of truly unknown aircraft in our skies. Special thanks to our guest, Rob Kristofferson. Be sure to check out his new
1: podcast, Our Strange Skies, and congratulations once again to our own Dr. Chris Cogswell, or Doc Cogs as I call him, on his new appointment as head of research at Buffon. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana.
2: Special thanks to John Bolin.
3: Hi, Hi, I'm Ashley. I'm Kristen
2: Albert. I'm Kevin Hughes, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends.
3: To use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity.
2: Our show is edited by Sarah voorhees Wendell, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel.
1: But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and
2: Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com/astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.